Our scripture passage this morning is Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 18. It's found on page 557 in your pew Bible. Please follow along with me. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was just thinking as that was read, I'd love to have a penny for your thoughts after you hear these texts in Ecclesiastes read each week. Um, Let's pray together as we dive in. Father, we are thankful for another opportunity to gather around your word uh, to unpack what you have said uh, to us uh, through the authors of this text or through the author of this text and the authors of this book. We just praise you 
for this opportunity. We ask that you would guide us by your spirit to comprehend it, but then also to apply it. Let it affect our lives as we leave here. We pray this in Jesus name. All right. um, Let's talk about first what I think most people, including myself, at times believe that life is or, or what we believe life is supposed to be like, how it's supposed to work. I think this is where most of us are, Uh, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time I know I'm here. Uh, If you're a good person, do your best, Uh, maybe even even love or at least respect God, then life will go well for you. Okay, so uh, I believe that at times on the other side of the spectrum, if you're a bad person, if you're lazy, if you're undisciplined, if you kicked your dog this morning, yelled at your kids, rooted for the Astros last night for some inexplicable reason, then life should not go well for you. Okay. Basically, the better you are, the better off in life you are, the worse you are, the worse off in life you are. You get what you pay for or what you deserve, either positive or negative. I think that's naturally how we think life should work. But here's the sometimes harsh reality of how life actually works. If you are a good person, maybe even a person who loves God, does your best, you're generous, you're kind, um, all sorts of bad things still happen to you. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there are awful people, the worst kind of people whose lives seem to go pretty well. We all think that life should go one way, but for some reason we put our money in the machine and the drink just doesn't drop or the candy doesn't come out and we just can't make sense of it. Life in so many ways sounds like uh, the famous Winston Churchill quote where he said, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I had to look up Churchill was actually talking about that's what it's like uh, negotiating with communists. But it sounds like he was talking about life in general. Uh, Well, if you think that life seems at least at times like a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, then you're in the right place this morning and we're in the right text in the right book. So as you heard read, we have made our way to Ecclesiastes chapter nine. If you're a guest with us today, welcome. Uh, Maybe if you're here for the first time, then welcome to this journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. If it is your first time, this is a great chapter for you to have walked into. I think the Lord timed that well for you. In many ways, this chapter is a recap of the book. It's a rehearsal of a lot of what's been covered. The preacher Okay, the author of the book identifies himself as the preacher. Most believe that it is Solomon. Um, So he's thrown a lot at us. Okay, he's thrown a lot at us and he's going to take a minute here, sort of a breath in chapter nine. And he's going to rehearse. He's going to repeat some of the things that he has already went over. I read one author who said that it's 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 like the preacher is taking a breath himself and allowing his congregation to take a breath so that they can catch up with some of the very unusual truths that he's thrown at them. It's kind of like I, you heard the text read. You're like, I have no clue what that's talking about. I really like the eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart part. And if you're married, maybe you like the enjoy your wife part. But the rest of it just seemed really strange. And we've just gotten text after text like that truth after truth that just seems perplexing. And so now he's going to slow down. He's going to say some things again and he's going to allow us to hopefully uh, catch up. So hopefully we're able to do that. Sort of catch our breath. Uh, maybe start to make sense of some of the things that we've been covering in this book. Maybe they'll start to, to sink in. Uh, before we dive back into this uh, chapter, let me um, bring up some things or remind you of some things that I mentioned near the beginning of this series that I think help us to understand this book. Since he's rehearsing some things, I figure we might as, as well. So Ecclesiastes falls 
under the genre of wisdom literature in the Bible. So Proverbs or Psalms, but Proverbs probably is the most well-tread book when it comes to wisdom. If I want wisdom, I go to Proverbs and I figure out what's going on there. And Proverbs, if you've ever read it, deals with generalizations, okay? Things that are normally true in life, like work hard and it'll go well for you. Okay, that, that's Proverbs. That's proverbial wisdom. That is not a guarantee. So when you read Proverbs and it says, if you do this, this will happen, that's not a guarantee. That's proverbial wisdom. If you do this in God's economy, normally this happens. That's the way things are created. Well, if Proverbs deals with generalizations like that, then Ecclesiastes deals with the exceptions, with the disappointments, with the frustrations. Okay, Ecclesiastes doesn't negate Proverbs, doesn't deny Proverbs, it doesn't contradict it, but it shows you that something is broken in the system. It shows you why Ecclesiastes helps us to understand why Proverbs, when we apply them, don't always come true. That's what Ecclesiastes does for us. To say it another way, another way. Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, is a stark reminder that we live in a Genesis 3 world, not a Genesis 2 world. It's a stark reminder of that. Okay, But Ecclesiastes also makes clear that that Genesis 2 world has not vanished. It's not completely lost, that there are still parts of it, glimpses of it, and indications of its return. So don't forget this piece of the equation as we're walking through Ecclesiastes, even though it's clear based on this book that we live in a Genesis three, meaning a broken world, that there's something wrong. Even though we live in that world, the good life, Ecclesiastes would say, the biblically defined good life still exists. This book exists in part to help us to know how do you live the good life in a Genesis three kind of world. So we're on a journey through this book, not to be perplexed, but to be educated, to be guided into what it means to live the good life. What does that look like? What does that entail? Even in the midst of a world that is vain at times, that is vanity, is fleeting, is enigmatic, is is just perplexing and confusing and disappointing, the good life still exists. Okay? So with that set up, let's get to the text. Two main headings that we're going to use to tackle the entirety of this chapter. So first, we're going to look at what the preacher, our author, says, um, uh, what he says, or we're going to look at his observations from under the sun. So that's first heading. So observations from under the sun. Remember, under the sun, that phrase you use throughout this book is just life on earth. Okay, His observations of what life is like on earth. So that's the first heading. Second heading is we're going to look at exhortations from above the sun, exhortations from heaven, as you may say. Okay, He's going to give us in this chapter the most in-depth look so far at the good life. He's just kind of hit at it along the way, but we get the most in-depth look at the good life that God gives to us. So two main headings, three points under each of those. They'll be on the screen as you go, and I'll also give them to you. So first heading, observations. From our preacher, from under the sun. And this heading makes up the majority of the text. So if you start looking at the time and go, hey, he's really not done with the first heading and we're running out of time. That's because most of the text falls under the first heading. Really, everything in this text except verses 7 through 10 would fall under this heading. Okay, Second heading would cover 7 through 10. And it's not quite this neat, but um, this this. The points under this heading almost divide neatly into three sections of the text. Verse one, 
uh, or I'm sorry, verse, verses 1 through 6 would be one section, verses 11 through 12, verses 11 and 12, and then verses 13 to the end. Those would be the different sections. And he sets all of these up. I'm using that observation language uh, on purpose. Verse 1, he talks about how he examined it all. So he's looking, he's examining things. Verse 11 says, again, I saw. In verse 13, I have also seen. So this is him looking at the world as it is and reporting back to us. Okay, so those observation like indications set up the three points that we're going to cover today. And there's some overlap, repetition and truce. Um, But this is what surrounds verses seven through ten. So we're not going to just go through the text and end at the end. We're going to go through the text and end in the middle, sort of the meat in the middle. We'll cover the bread and then we're going to eat the meat. So. Three observations from under the sun pulled from this text. Uh, And again, if you've been through this series, these are not new. If you've not been here, then here's a lot of what the book is uh, about. From first observation from our preacher, death is irrefutable. Death is irrefutable. So that's a summation of verses one through six. And you could also say the same thing that we've said before. Death is universal. So it's irrefutable and universal. Verse two talks about, it says the same event, the same event happens to all. Verse three says the same thing, both talking about death. That same event that happens to all is death. Then verses four through six, you get death and perishing mentioned more specifically. So we've had to face this truth on a number of occasions in this book. If you don't like talking about thinking about meditating on death, you don't read the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't like that, then you run from this book. The preacher, in certain ways, loves the funeral home. He loves the graveside. He loves to go to the graveyard and make a stare at the headstones. He wants us to look at the coffin and he wants us to see ourselves in it in many ways and call that to cause us to ask some questions. He wants us to see everyone there based on this text and he wants it to affect our lives. So he's not just being morbid. He's saying you need to look at death for a purpose. And his aim is good, even if his method is painful. Okay, His aim is to look at, he wants you to look at death, and his aim is good, but his method is painful. Now, he says a little more here than just the fact that death is certain and irrefutable. But that that's the main point. That's the main point of verses 1 through 6. But he also, as he's done before, he's highlighting God's sovereignty over our lives and even over death, that God is in control. God is sovereign over death. Okay. What did he lay to heart according to verse one? Look at it again. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are where? In the hands of God, in the hand of God. So that's a great truth. No need to run from that. But unfortunately, he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Whether it is love or hate, Man does not know. Both are before him. So he's doing pretty good. And then he adds that. Okay, we're in the hand of God. Both the both the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's a good place to be. But then he says, whether it's love or hate, man doesn't really know. Okay, let's not deny how true this statement is. If we'll just stop and examine it, you can affirm that we are in the hands of God. But at times, based on the way that our lives are going or the lives of others are going, we can't tell if we're receiving favor from God, blessing from God or the frown of God. Both are evident at times. We just don't understand why we can't understand why is good and why is bad happening. 
Here's what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that we can never be assured of God's favor. Remember, he's observing, describing what life looks like and feels like on earth. Okay, these are observations under the sun. He's saying, as one preacher said, that you don't know if the providence is a smile or a frown. We don't truly know what's happening and what's going on throughout most of life. Or simply put, life is not a simple equation and we are obviously not fully in control. Life is not a simple equation and we are not fully in control. He comes in and blows up the common belief that I mentioned at the beginning. He says the same for all, the same event, death awaits all. Doesn't matter whether you're righteous or wicked or good or evil, clean or unclean, whether you sacrifice to God or not. From our observing of life, things look the same for all. And the same event eventually happens to all. See, here's the deal. Go back to how our minds naturally work. We tend to believe that we live as if we can engineer all of our desired outcomes. I desire that outcome. Therefore, I do X, Y, Z to make it come to reality. Here's what we want. I'm just going to do that and I'll get it. And the author of Ecclesiastes takes a grenade in the middle of that misconception and just blows it up and says, that's not how things work. He's saying righteousness does not promise earthly blessing. Diet and exercise don't promise health. Sacrifice doesn't promise reward. And he's not happy about this. So it's not like he's saying, well, this is a great thing and we don't have to be happy about it. He calls it an evil under the sun. He says, something's not right with all of this, like something. The equation is broken and I don't like it. And I I just want you to know that I don't think it's right. I assume uh, most of you, many of you, hopefully all of you are Christians this morning, but I, I don't know all of you that well. Okay, just assume that most of us are Christians in here this morning. If you're not, I'll speak to you in just a second. But as Christians, You know, we we might read the Bible and all that it says about death. If we kind of take the totality of what the Bible says about death and we might think, well, it's not not that big a deal. It's kind of, you know, to to die is gain. Right. Death is defeated. Doesn't have the last word. There's victory over death. Those are all good truths, all true things, all things we need to acknowledge, believe and lean into. But those truths should not lead us away from seeing that death points to a problem. Like death is an issue. There's an issue behind death. This text reminds us that death is an evil. You should never stand beside a coffin or walk up to the funeral and think everything's okay. Like that's that's not okay. You don't just walk up and say, well, this means everything is fine. D.A. Carson rightly says death is an enemy. It can be a fierce one. He says it's ugly. It destroys relationships. It is to be feared. It is repulsive. There's something odious about death. Never pretend otherwise. Having a biblical view of death does not minimize the seriousness of death. Our author is staring at the headstone and saying something's wrong. Something's messed up. And don't miss what else he says. He also says that we are messed up. Amidst all the talk of death, it's easy to miss just this 
just blunt statement of our depravity right in the middle of it, something that actually leads to or causes our death. He doesn't just say something is broken out there. He says something is broken in here. Middle of verse three. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. That's just like the biggest side note ever in a sermon. All people have messed up hearts by nature. That's what the preacher just said. Or as one author said, the factory settings of our fallen nature are off. The default settings are broken. As the Bible asserts over and over again, and as the preacher here is affirming, we are sinners by nature, not just by choice. You didn't have to teach your kids to say no. It's always the most obvious one. That's not his main point, but that truth alone Provides so much explanation to so many things. If you deny depravity, the truth this text is supporting, then you will be even more perplexed at this perplexing world. Because you have so many questions that you can't find answers to about why things happen. But that's just like the biggest side note ever in the text. For now, let's get back to the irrefutability of death, if that's actually a word. As Christians, we don't have to fear it. Okay. We don't have to fear it based on what else is said about death, but we we also need to speak honestly about it. Okay, it points to a problem. Death points to a problem. Righteous and wicked, good people, nice people, nasty people, believer, unbeliever, all go to the ground. Every one of us. One day, life on earth under the sun will end for all, regardless of category. That And that leads to a good question for the unbeliever, or maybe a warning wrapped in a good word for the unbeliever. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. Why? Think about that. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. Why? Why does the living have hope? Well, according to the author, because a living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, that answers it. That really helps me understand the point. Real quick, okay, culturally in that time, dogs were despised. We love dogs, treat them better than humans in a lot of ways. They didn't. They hated dogs. Lions would have been preferred, respected, okay, feared a lion, hated a dog. So he's even saying that a dead dog, something that despised, because it's alive, is better than a lion. He's using an illustration to say that anyone that's living is better than someone that is dead. Why? Verse 5, for the living know they will die. But the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. Now, I admit that doesn't sound comforting. You're telling me the only benefit of being alive is that I know I'm going to die. It doesn't sound beneficial. It sounds like he's saying that's the only advantage. But what he's actually saying is if you are alive, then that means you have something the dead don't have opportunity. You have a chance. Okay, there still exists for you a chance. An opportunity. That's the point of the verse. When you die, according to verses five and six, there's no more opportunity on earth and you are quickly forgotten. For the believer, we can be okay with that reality because we know what's going to happen. For the unbeliever, I hope you are not okay with that reality. So if you're here, if you listen to this later on and you are alive, which if you're listening to this, you're obviously alive. That reality alone, you just being able to hear these words, meaning you're alive, that reality alone means there's still a chance. 
The living has one advantage. You know you will one day die. And so that puts a question before you. Are you ready for it? Are you ready to die? Are you prepared? Do you know what happens? Do you know where you are headed? Do you think it's just over or do you think there's something more coming from that? We as Christians believe there is more. We believe there is good news for some and bad news for others. Okay, it's good news. Death is good news for those that have met and received and embraced Jesus Christ. It's bad news for those that have rejected him. Here's the good news. It's available to everyone that will receive it. I think one preacher put it really well. He said, he said, death levels all of us, meaning it puts us all on the same plane because we're all going to die. So he said, death levels all of us, but Jesus leveled death. One day, death will be swallowed up and sink into the hole of Christ's resurrection. So here's my somewhat morbid encouragement okay, for all of us. If you could just take a moment and imagine your own death. What do you see coming after and why? If you're alive, it means there's still hope. There's still time. Either you will find good news at death with Christ or you will find bad news at death without him. What do you see? When you picture your own death, what do you see? What does your own imagined funeral preach to you? David Gibson, who we've quoted many times in this series, he said, when confronted with death up close, everyone realizes that we all come to this. But if that is the first time it confronts us, then it will be utterly crushing to us. Realizing that we all come to this before we come to it is very different from realizing it only when it's staring you in the face. So looking at death and considering it, are you prepared for it? And a major point in the book, and one we'll see again today, is that looking at death and considering it will not just help you to be prepared for it, but it's meant to help you to live until it. Okay? That's what we're going to get to. That's that's part of his point. He doesn't just try to push you to despair and say, think about death all the time. He's saying, look at death and then come back and live well as a result of that. So, for now, we see that death is irrefutable. Uh, And by the way, if if, uh, any of this talk about death sort of startles you sometimes when you bring up death it's just like that just that just takes me to a bad place love to talk to you afterwards about any of this so um next observation life is unpredictable life is unpredictable kind of like the, the that's the duh point of the day life is unpredictable uh, i think this actually helps flesh out part of what verse one says about not really knowing or understanding what's happening in life even if we acknowledge god's sovereignty under the sun sometimes We can't tell if God likes us or despises us. Why? Because we don't have the tools to really tell. Okay, we got the truth that tells us what God thinks about us, but we don't have the full picture to know exactly what's happening in every situation. From a purely under the sun point of view, it doesn't make sense. Things feel off to us. We have verses 11 and 12 that just... Add some layers here. And in summary form, they essentially say, verses 11 and 12, essentially say life is unpredictable. It doesn't go the way you think it should go all the time. Okay. Again, the proverbial equation seems broken at times. 
The fastest runner should win the race. The strong should win the battle. The wise should prosper. The smart should get the best jobs. But what do we know to be true? It doesn't always happen that way. It doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes the favored team loses or the fastest runner trips. Sometimes the biggest and baddest army gets it handed to them. Sometimes smart people get crappy jobs. Sometimes the wise don't prosper. Sometimes the fools do. He's not saying they never win and they never prosper, but he's saying it doesn't always happen. Fortune and chance will mock you, according to the preacher. And don't let that word chance there kind of trip you up. OK, we're not talking about playing Candyland. OK, if you've never played Candyland, there, there is nothing but chance there. There is no skill whatsoever. It's all about what you draw or what you roll. That's it. Doesn't matter. Nothing you can do about it. It's not monopoly. No skill at all. Chance here, we could translate it something like this. Time and happenings happen to all. That's, that's really what he's saying. In other words, situations arise, circumstances change, unforeseen events occur, and we don't have control over them. And it's obvious that we don't have control over them. Gibson points out the contrast of how we view death versus life or the first section of this text versus this one. We tend to live as if the one thing that is certain, which is death, will never come to us. While we also live as if the many things that are uncertain are actually certain. Okay, we live as if there's certainty in this life and then we deny the one thing that will be certain and then we will die. Now that changes over time, I think, as we get older. The preacher isn't giving us here an equation for life. He's not saying that life is a certain percent skill and a certain percent luck or chance. He's simply saying you're not in control. And life in a fallen, broken Genesis 3 world is unpredictable. We tend to think that the good and the strong and the right will always win. But sometimes, just to keep picking on them, the Astros win. And it doesn't make sense. He also makes clear here that death is unpredictable itself. You know it's certain, but you don't know when it's certain. It's unpredictable. According to verse 12, we don't know our time like fish are taken in an evil net and like birds are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We don't know when death or even tragedy will hit. Everything can fall apart without warning. Everything can change with one phone call. Just think about how many microcosms of this you've experienced maybe just in the past few weeks how many times has the day been going well and the phone rings and the day turns just like that that's all it takes you had no idea it was coming the day was great day was perfect up until that point and i got a phone call that i didn't expect and my day was radically altered as a result my life may have been radically altered by that phone call So how much control do you really think you have over your life? That's part of the point here is to help you see you're not in control. Here's how one writer put it. He said, can you see what the preacher is saying to us? He's saying, put your faith in something else that is not under the sun, because every event under the sun or just one event under the sun can change our best laid plans. Every plan we have for life can be changed by one phone call. One event that is completely out of our control can radically alter our entire lives. 
And the takeaway is don't despair. Don't like live life worried about the phone call. It's to it's to trust something else besides your control over life. Both the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life are actually supposed to help us in a variety of ways. In one way, they're they're to help us to see we're not in control and that we don't have to be in control, that someone else is in control and that someone else can be trusted. He knows the phone call is coming. What hap- what is happening in our lives may not seem good, but we are still in good hands. Okay? What happens in our lives may not seem good, but we can always trust that we are in good hands. So life under the sun involves the twin realities that death, death is irrefutable and life is unpredictable. But that's not it. One more. And this connects as much to chapter 10, so there'll be more on this next week um, as it does to chapter 9. Final observation from under the sun, wisdom is limited. Wisdom is limited. And I'll try to leave as much as I can for next week. But verses 13 through 17 helps us, okay, see at least two things, okay? At least two things out of verses 13 through 17. Wisdom is good and wisdom is limited. Or you could say wisdom is preferred. So living the wise life is preferred. But the wise life is still very imperfect. So we get this story and we aren't sure if it's a made up illustration or an actual true story. But you have a, a small city being attacked by a great king. And what happens? Not what we would predict. A poor, wise man, it says, utilizes his wisdom and saves the city. We're not told how, but basically we see wisdom prevail over might. Okay. Wisdom prevails over might. So we know that to be true sometimes, that wisdom will prevail over might. And if the story stopped there, we'd conclude that, what do we need? We need wisdom. Okay, wisdom is better than strength. Okay, the mind is mightier than the sword, if we just stopped right there. He even says, verse 16, that wisdom is better than might. Verse 17, he adds to it. He says that wise counsel in quiet is better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. So no doubt, wisdom is good. Wisdom is better than the alternative. We know from all of Scripture that wisdom is good. It is to be sought. The fear of God is actually the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is to be asked for. We're to pray for wisdom when we don't have it. Wisdom is prized while folly and foolishness is not. But there's a big flashing qualification in this text about wisdom. It's good. It may be best. But it's severely limited. What happened to the poor, wise man who saved the city? Who knows? The dude was essentially forgotten, according to the text. No one remembered him, according to verse 15. According to verse 16, to some extent, his wisdom was despised. He saved the city, but they despised his wisdom. His words were not heard. Points to the truth that crowds are fickle and tend to forget quickly. If you know the story of Moses and his leadership over the people of Israel... You know that pretty quickly the crowd will turn on you. And sometimes verse 17 proves true. The wise are better to listen to, but the loud, the loud are the ones who get heard. So wise people tend to give quiet, humble counsel. Okay, but the loud that triumph, it's the loud that tend to triumph, even if they're idiots, because they just speak the loudest. See, a lot of that in our day sounds a bit like modern day politics. It's the loudest idiot that gets the most attention, not the wise who are actually doing good things or could do good things. 
He then says wisdom is better, but one sinner destroys much good. Basically, it doesn't take much to wipe out a whole lot of good. A little bit of folly can undo a massive amount of good. And this proves true in a lot of people's lives. It could be true for you that you lived a wise life, but you made one foolish decision and it it just wiped out all all of that wise living. Or one fool comes after you and suddenly everything you built is gone. Everything you did to accomplish something good is gone. The company you built or whatever you want to say, it just takes one fool or one foolish decision to wipe it all out. There's a lot of takeaways from this point, probably a whole sermon right there. But here's just one. Wisdom is better than power. And certainly better than evil and foolishness. But don't be surprised if wisdom doesn't bring you praise. He saved the city with his wisdom and was forgotten. Who knows what happened to him? Don't be surprised if wisdom doesn't bring you praise. Which brings to mind the question, are you living wisely for God's approval or human approval? Think about that. Is wise living, are you doing it to be approved by others or by God? And think about how often those two compete with one another. How how often can you be wise and, and get human approval and God's approval? They're normally opposed to one another, those two approvals. Remember, according to the text, the crowds will forget you. According to the rest of Scripture, God never will. So wisdom is better, but it's still limited. Pursue it, but understand you may not be praised for it. And one act or one fool can wipe it all out. Okay. More more we, we could say more on that, but you're sufficiently depressed. Okay. So wisdom stinks, death is coming, life is uncertain. Where's the good news, right? All right. So um, more in chapter ten on wisdom. Okay. For now, those are the preacher's observations from under the sun. But we can't stop there. Because just those observations alone sort of lead you in a depressing direction, in the wrong direction. It, it could lead you to say, well, it just doesn't make sense. Why, why would I even try? Like, what's the point in all of it? Wisdom doesn't yield what I want. Life is unpredictable. We're all headed to death anyway. So what's the point? Why try? Live it up. Who cares? Life stinks. It can be easy to go there. It can be easy to go in a lot of different directions as a result of just looking at the observations. But that's not where the preacher leaves us. And that's not the preacher's aim. He's helping us to see. That the perplexing nature of life does not lead us to despair. It leads us to good, leads us to the good life. Okay, he's just not taking the route to the good life that we want to take. So still arriving at the destination. So here here we go from observations to exhortations. So exhortations from above the sun. Again, this is verses seven through ten. Uh, And as one uh, person said, it's like the preacher is code switching at this point. He's no longer talking about life as he observes it. He's now talking about life as God gives it, as he intends us to live it, even in the midst of realities that are perplexing. So this is the preacher saying you may live in a Genesis three world, but Genesis two is not completely lost. So here here's how you live. Now, we've seen a number of these these texts, these sort of. Biblical carpe diem, seize the day type text. We've seen a number of them in Ecclesiastes. This is the fullest one. This is the longest one and fullest one. And there's a reason that I've labeled this section as exhortations from above the sun, because you have an added word that we have not had in any of the other similar texts. And it's go. Go. You you have the nuance of imperative, of command. Go and do these things. 
Yes, death is certain. Yes, life is not certain. Yes, wisdom is limited, but go and live the good life. And here's what that entails, at least in part. And I think we can summarize things here into three exhortations. You could break it up more than that. So three exhortations. And this is not an exhaustive list of what the good life entails. In many ways, this points to how the basics of life make up the good life. Okay, it's not the extraordinary, according to the author. You don't need the extraordinary. Okay, It's just a right view and a right use of the basics of life that make up the good life. Okay, Which means the good life is accessible to all, not just the privileged, so to speak. Now, here's a qualification real quick. Okay, the preacher is going to talk about food again. He's going to talk about drink again. He's going to talk about generally celebrating life. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about work. But this is not all the Bible says about food, drink, marriage, celebrating, work. Okay, it's not all the Bible says. You might think about it this way. God designed these things, but designed how they're supposed to work. He put guardrails up okay, around food and drink and marriage and work. You might say he gave us these things and then gave us a user manual for how to rightly use them and how to maximize the benefits of them. Okay, these are his gifts. We tend to take them and 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 manipulate them and change them. And then they don't work like they're supposed to for us. For instance, food. Good, right? Everybody like food? It's to be enjoyed. What happens if you eat too much? A lot of things. But the Bible says you're a glutton. That's sinful. Okay. Drink or wine is this reference here. Okay, Bible says it's good. It's a gift from the Lord. What happens if you drink too much? Become an alcoholic. Okay, you can abuse your marriage. You can abuse work. You can work too much. You're not work enough. So there's abuse all over the place. So this is not an unqualified, seize the day, live it up text. This text is informed and governed by the rest of the Bible. So keep that in mind. It's not as if God is saying, forget the poor and live it up. God can actually say, be generous and live the good life. He, he can say both of those things and we can hold them in tension together. All right. So there's my qualification. Three exhortations from above the sun. First, delight in the simple. Delight in the simple. This one sort of summarizes the entire section, but specifically aims at verses seven and eight. And one of the main things I want you to see here is something that's stated a little more specifically and emphatically or directly than we've seen in other texts. The end of verse seven says, for God has already approved what you do. You notice that for God has already approved what you do, meaning these things we are looking at here. These are gifts from God that we receive out of his favor. He approves of them. He approves of your pleasure in them. Or another, we'll say it this way, enjoying his gifts glorifies the giver. Maybe think about it like this. Um, It's not even Thanksgiving yet, but um, there's something you all are already thinking about. What is it? Christmas. Some of you don't want to say it because you know I'm going to go after you. Okay. Christmas, right? It's not even Thanksgiving yet and you're already thinking about Christmas. My mother-in-law already has up trees, plural. So pray for her and for any of you that are already doing that. And I know some of you are. There is one part of Christmas that I think is redeemable. Gift giving. Okay. If you're a parent, okay, it's okay. You delight in giving your 
kids gifts. Okay, don't go over the top, but it's okay to delight in giving your kids gifts. Why do you delight in the act? Why do you delight in the act of gift giving? Because it brings delight to them, right? You delight in their delight. That's the picture here. God is like us in this regard, or better said, we're like him in this regard, okay? As he gives us gifts, it's a sign of his pleasure in us. When we enjoy his gifts, it's a sign of our pleasure in him, and it glorifies him. So what's the best way to respond to the gift of food, the gift of wine, and so on here? Go and enjoy them. Because that, in and of itself, is a means of glorifying God. Our joy in his gifts glorifies him. That's part of, I think it's part of God's design in making us want food over and over and over again. Think about how many opportunities in one day we have a chance to glorify God through our joy that comes through food. He's just drawn us back to himself. For us, like three times a day. I think there's a lot here that's counterintuitive to us. If you take this text as a whole. So you're told you're going to die. You're told that the time until you die is uncertain. It's It's counterintuitive for those realities to cause you to enjoy what we have, which are the simple things in life. But that's the preacher's aim. That's the preacher's aim. You know, it's been rightly said that God uses a number of means to make us homesick for heaven. He's the number of means, a number of ways, a number of avenues to make us homesick for heaven. On one side, he uses suffering. He uses disappointment. He uses a lot of there's a lot of bad things on this side that make us homesick for heaven. Like, Lord, we look forward to the day. This is no longer so. And we know that day is coming. Okay, things we've already discussed here in this text. On the other side, he uses what you might call small joys to make us homesick for heaven. Because those things that are so good are nothing but a small glimpse or a foretaste of what they one day will be. Heaven, over and over, okay? Heaven, over and over, is billed as a day of rich food full of marrow and aged wine with well-refined. The book of Revelation looks forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Every meal is a foretaste, an appetizer of a banquet that is to come. It's just, I think it was Lewis that said, every one of these small joys is a string attached to a much greater joy. And you're just, you just want to follow that string to the other one. You ever think about how much Jesus ate? How many meals we have recorded in the gospel accounts? David Ford wrote a book. I think he talked about, I can't remember the name of it, but he, he, he had a phrase in there where he said Jesus literally ate his way through the gospels. He always seemed to be gathered around a meal with people. Jesus' life preaches Ecclesiastes to, to us. He tells us that God's good world is there to be enjoyed. It's not that it's not difficult, but it's good and it's to be enjoyed. Our author here is specifically pointing to the joy to be found in some of the simplest things in life, like food and drink. But there's a general exhortation here just to enjoyment and celebration. Verse eight, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. So in that day, if you were sad, what'd you do? Wear sackcloth, put ashes on your head. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Okay. But there was a time to celebrate. There was a time for joy. 
You put the white clothes on the head, put oil on your skin. General exhortation, enjoy life, generally speaking. It doesn't mean life is a party. It doesn't mean there's no time for mourning and sadness, but it does mean there's a time to celebrate. It does mean there's a time for joy. Practically speaking, there's even a time to get dressed up and enjoy. It's easy to think that the brevity and unpredictability of life should always be met with seriousness and urgency. And there's certainly a place for that. But according to God, speaking through the preacher here, there's also a time to celebrate. Okay. In the words of Footloose, there's a time to dance. So. Lost a lot of kids on that one, didn't I? All right. Remember, chapter three, he said there's a time for everything. There's a time for everything. Next exhortation, delight in the simple. Next, enjoy those you love. Enjoy those you love. Verse 9, enjoy life for the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Pretty simple exhortation here. Enjoy the spouse you love. We have that word vain there again. Remember, that's a pretty nuanced word. Okay, One of the meanings is, meaning, meanings is fleeting or soon to be gone. So remember, life is unpredictable and death is certain. So your spouse could be gone. Your relationships could be gone before you know it. Don't look up. And find that you had no enjoyment in those relationships. Now, there's a key word here. It says, enjoy the spouse you love. Okay. Enjoyment flows out of a relationship where love exists. Okay. He's definitely talking about marriage here, but you could broaden it. Enjoy life with the friends you care about, with the family that you love, with the faith family that you love. Enjoy the relationships that you have. We're not just told just live and put up with people, but to enjoy them. Don't just use people for what you can get out of them. Seek to enjoy them as God's gift to you. People that you love are God's gift to you. I hope all of you can say that are married can say the same thing that I can say without hesitation. And she's back there keeping the kids right now, so I don't don't have to embarrass her. But um, even if I don't live like it or say it enough outside of my salvation, my wife is the Lord's kindest gift to me. And she truly is an enjoyment. My kids are an incredible gift to me, and I enjoy them imperfectly at times and not enough. But they bring me joy. My friends are a gift to me beyond what I can measure. I'm not sure I enjoy them enough. We need to take stock. The relationships that we have are a gift from God to us, and they are to be enjoyed to his glory. So why don't you take time this week, very soon. Take, combine the first two exhortations here. Grab some people you love and have a meal and a drink with them, okay? If you don't drink, don't add that part, okay? But just get with some people and have a meal with them. With the people that God has given you, let's allow the gifts of God to have a multiplying effect on our joy. Combine them together. How about you try this sometime soon? Get dressed up, grab a meal with some friends, slow down, enjoy them, enjoy the food. Last exhortation. Delight and simple. Enjoy those you love and excel at your labor. Excel at your labor. Probably could have ended on a high note with the last one. But God decides to throw in a little theology of work here at the end. Um, I think we have to remind ourselves that work is not a curse, but work is affected by the curse. So work, Genesis 2. The curse, Genesis 3. Messed work all up. Verse 10 here is really interesting. It says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. Why? 
He brings death back in. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol in the grave to which you are going. He's not really talking about heaven there. Okay. And he's certainly not saying that all work is in vain. That would contradict other texts. He's simply saying work well now because there's no work in the grave. Again, this is counterintuitive. So you're telling me I'm going to die. That's what you're saying. I'm going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. That bad things could happen to me at any point, and you want me to go to work. Now, that doesn't really compute. There's a lot of things I would rather do if I'm going to die, and I don't know why and bad things may happen. But the author is saying, yes, go to work. Do it well. For kids, whatever you put your hand to, study, sports, okay, whatever it is. That's God's gift to you, his portion to you. It's a part of the good, simple life he has for you. You were designed and created to work. There's a reason that work has a fulfilling element to it. There's a reason for that. God put it in there. Here's what we need to make sure and come to terms with. All legitimate, honest work, whether it's homemaking or teaching or carpentry or engineering or studying or whatever it is, all legitimate, honest work is a gift from God and covered in his glory. It all tends his creation and it all reflects his glory in some way. Just remember who you were ultimately working for, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You may have a terrible boss or you may have a great boss. Doesn't matter. You ultimately have the best boss in heaven. You may not ever get the deserve well done by your earthly boss, but you have the unreserved smile of your heavenly one. Work for him, even if it's not appreciated here. Understand this. You can't do... The job well that you don't have. You can only do the job well that you do have. And you are not entirely responsible for what comes out of that job, but you are responsible for what you put into it. All right. Out of time. Totally out of time. Uh, So a lot more we could say on this. More on wisdom next week. I'll land the plane this way. I mentioned a minute ago that God uses different means to make us homesick for heaven. Okay, the simple joys, food, drink, relationships, those are part of those means. Okay, they give us a glimpse, a foretaste of what is to come. And I think C.S. Lewis captured this well in the last battle. Okay, so if if you read that, when the, the children go from old Narnia to new Narnia, okay, it says they discover that every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it were meant for more. And then the unicorn in the story, who he sums up what everybody is feeling. He stamps his foot on the ground and he said... I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all along and I didn't even know it. And he says the reason why we love the old Narnia is sometimes it looked like the new one. The gifts, the simple gifts of food, drink, relationship, work, they are part. They are a part of the real country that we are headed to. They smell And they taste and they sound and they feel like home. So let's not miss out on them. Right now, we we get to partake in a different meal, a meal that doesn't just cause us to look forward, but causes us to look back as well. Let me go ahead and invite those up that are going to be serving the Lord's Supper today. So the simple joys that we have point us forward to what's to come. But this meal in so many ways points us back to what makes that future possible. This meal in 
summation points us back to Jesus. Here's the deal. The perspective, the approach to life that we've looked at today, the ability to hear and receive verse seven for to, to receive this for God has already approved of what you do that only the believer can receive that. Only the one who has met and has trusted in and is following Jesus can receive that part of the text. This meal we're about to partake in this this bread and this juice, this represents what Jesus did to make the good life possible for us. So there are several ways or there are several postures you can take that you can partake when or several postures you can lean into when you partake of this. Certainly reflection is one of them, but celebration is another for every believer here today. I exhort you as this is coming around, let's celebrate. And you can do that just through Thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for the good gifts that you have purchased for me and how those good gifts will be ultimate gifts one day because of what Jesus has done. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this is a meal reserved for followers of Jesus. And we ask that you would just observe us. Let these things pass by and maybe consider the questions about death. Where are you? And consider what this meal might mean, and we'd love to talk with you more after about that. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to distribute both. And again, believers, as we do so, just take a moment just to praise the Lord for the good life, for the simple things that point to the ultimate things, and how this makes it possible. Father, we are thankful for your word and for the bread and the cup and what they remind us of. And what they point us to, we pray that our minds would go in that direction now as as we prepare to partake of the bread and the cup and look back upon your broken body and your shed blood that makes the good life possible and what's to come a certainty. We pray that you would help us to celebrate now. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.